Hi, this is Jamie Pride, and welcome to the Failure Proof Podcast. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us on the podcast where we explore performance, leadership, resilience, and the mindset needed to thrive in the modern workplace. This episode is brought to you by The Founder Lab, a free community where entrepreneurs can share ideas and experiences. Find out more at thefounderlab.com.au. On this episode, I'm joined by Mike DiStefano. Mike is the Asia-Pacific president of the organizational talent and strategy firm Corn Ferry. He happens also to be one of my colleagues. Between 2007 and 2017, he was the firm's chief marketing officer and also president of the Corn Ferry Institute. During this conversation, Mike and I discuss the topic of business agility and its relevance as we turn the corner of the coronavirus pandemic. This is a very practical focused conversation where we chat about what leaders and organizations can do to empower their teams and build a culture of openness and performance. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. And on today's show, I'm joined by Mike DiStefano. Welcome. Hey, Jamie. Nice to be here. Yeah, really nice to have you. And uh, so you are at Corn Ferry. Um, for our audience, it'd be great for you to just give us a bit of an intro and, and tell us about what you do for the firm and uh, how you got to where you got to. Yeah, you bet. Uh, well, I grew up in a sales and marketing capacity and I found myself in Silicon Valley uh, just before the turn of the century and had grown up in financial services marketing in New York. And one night I came home, I was going to grad school at night. We had just had our second child. We had just bought a new home. I came home from work one day from Manhattan. I said to my wife, honey, today I quit my job. We're selling our house and we're moving to Silicon (laughs) Valley because uh, it's kind of like being alive during the Roman Empire and not taking a shot at Rome. And so uh, and so we did that. And it was a wonderful few years up in the Bay Area. And then I got a call from a guy named Richard Ferry, who uh, basically changed my life, but um, asked me what I knew about leadership and, and what were the attributes of successful people and organizations that changed the world. And uh, before too long, I found myself in Los Angeles, California, uh, working for Corn Ferry. I've been here for 20 years. And about three and a half years ago, I came home from work one night and I said to my wife, honey, we're going to pack up the ship one more time and and move to China because it's kind of like being alive in the Roman Empire and not taking a shot at Rome. And she said, okay, here we go. And we've spent the last three and a half years in Asia. And uh, it's been a wonderful experience. I have the, the great fortune of, of working with you and the other 2000 men and women of, of Corn Ferry Asia Pacific and helping organizations with leadership and challenges, talent challenges every day. That's fantastic. And what a huge leap of faith to move from, you know, the East Coast to the West Coast um, on a whim. Did you have a job to, to go East to? Coast. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> did you have a did you have a, uh, a job to go to or was it, uh, you know what, we'll get there and we'll work something out? Uh, no, I had been in dialogue with some headhunters okay. and um, I guess that was my first foray in the with the headhunter profession back in 1997 <laughs> fantastic and uh, and how are you finding asia you've got the privilege of 
seeing a lot of our clients across the region and you know I've, I've spent some time in Asia myself it's a uh, it's a it's a ba- absolute bustling economy um, and we're seeing obviously a lot of growth in China and also across the region um, how, how was that adjustment for you coming from North America and, and moving to Asia you know Jamie I, I had the good fortune of, of being the firm's chief marketing officer for a number of, of years prior to moving to Asia and uh, and that gave me the opportunity need to travel around the world and, and deal with clients again for, for the last uh, couple decades. But as I always tell everybody, um, living someplace is a heck of a lot different than traveling to someplace. And we operate in 14 countries across Asia Pacific. And the thing that's been both the most challenging as well as the most rewarding has just been the mental shift that you need to to make when you're working with colleagues and clients, whether it be in your hometown in Sydney or in Shanghai or in Mumbai or Tokyo or anywhere in between. So uh, again, it's been a wonderful experience. And, And the other thing I would say is that the more things and people are different, the more they're exactly the same. And, and even though the culture and the nuances and the business conditions may be, be different from location to location, ultimately the way that people think, act, uh, lead, work in teams, you know, always comes down to the same attributes. So it's, it's really just about uh, manipulating or, or changing, massaging your approach to, to fit for the particular country. So that, that's been just an awesome, it's been the, the, the adventure of my career for sure. Yeah, it's, de- it's definitely a rewarding place um, to live and to work. Um, and look, I know we, we live in, I've heard it said so many times, unprecedented times. Um, I was speaking to my kids the other day and, and said to them that, uh, you know, this is essentially a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Well, hopefully it's a once-in-a-lifetime thing, but we're living through a, a global pandemic and, uh, you know, depending on the industry uh, that you're, you're working in, um, you know, some people are, you know, experiencing a lot of growth. If I look at, um, you know, health tech and if if I look at some areas of technology, um, you know, those businesses are experiencing a huge amount of growth. Um, and whilst others like the airline and tourism industry are, are suffering, you know, huge amounts of declines in their business, you've got the privilege of, of seeing a lot of um, our clients and, and seeing what they're doing. Um, what are you sort of seeing in the market in terms of how great leaders and organisations are uh, addressing the pandemic and and setting their organizations up for success, regardless of how they're experiencing things. Yeah. Uh, well, I could tell you, we are definitely seeing kind of a two speed uh, option. And, and one speed is kind of full speed ahead. And the other one is kind of in neutral or, or almost paralysis. So in, interestingly enough, to answer the question, you know, I, I was kind of re- reflecting uh, on some research that Corn Ferry did back in 2017, which was a model for digital sustainability. So although it wasn't that long ago, you know, we may have forgotten that that things were moving towards a digital, digital everything, internet of things, artificial intelligence, big data, et cetera, something you know a heck of a lot about. And, uh, and that was pre-COVID. Ironically, or I guess coincidentally, as COVID started to come into play, the framework that the Corn Ferry Institute actually built for digital sustainability in 2017 
plays really nicely for COVID sustainability or general business sustainability in 2020. Uh, and so we've been following that framework. I'd be happy to tell you there's kind of five core attributes. Um, if it makes sense, we could walk through those. Yeah. And look, I know that you've applied some of these internally as well. Um, and uh, yeah, so why don't we kick that off? And, and sort of what's the sort of the first element of that model and, and sort of how does it apply to um, so what you've done internally and also how you're seeing a, a clients, um, you know, deploy that concept externally. Sure. So I think with any good framework, uh, you know, the notion is always just to keep it simple. And, and I think one of the one of the places where organizations get into trouble is they just they, they believe and they start to execute into something that's just too sophisticated or, or onerous. Um, you just need simple structures that people can sort of understand and get behind. And so uh, so that's why we like this this framework for sustainability around five parts. The first part is open openness and transparency. So let's use it in a COVID environment. I, I think most organizations were really good about protecting their people, about keeping communications open. This is what's happening. This is how we're dealing with it. This is how we're trying to keep you safe, whether it's staying home, protective gear, um, other business routines that have been changed in any sort of capacity. Um, the tricky one on openness and transparency is really is not on the openness or on the constant communication, but really around the transparency. It's really thinking through, okay, how has the strategy changed? How has the strategy not changed? And how do we make that overly and abundantly apparent for our both our all our stakeholders, our colleagues, our customers, our board of directors, our shareholders, whoever that may be. Um, but but having having an open plan and having a transparent plan is the first part. If you'd like, I'm happy to talk through the the other four. Yeah, have, yeah, uh, ab- absolutely. Yeah. And and look, I think whilst you know, I'll sit on this one for a second. I mean, I think um, in terms of sort of openness and transparency, I know that um, it's probably one of the the cornerstones of sort of building trust in an organization and also reducing fear. And I know that when the pandemic first hit, a lot of people were, um, you know, afraid for their health, they were afraid for their family, afraid for their job. And I know that when I see leaders who are very open and transparent, it tends to, you know, displace, you know, some of that that fear and concern. I was speaking to one of our large clients um, in Australia and and uh, it was a quite insightful comment because he was saying that he was seeing huge amounts of productivity uptick in his business, uh, but he wasn't sure whether or not that was just driven out of you know goodwill in the employees or people just being afraid, right, and just working really, really hard. And I think you know openness and transparency from a leadership standpoint is just really crucial. Um, yeah, and then, so yeah, this, this, yeah. the second point of this model is really looking at an empowerment. Yeah, great. So empowerment and alignment. So it comes out of that openness and transparency. And I agree with you. You know, fear and confusion is an opportunity for leadership to strengthen trust. And um, I think that that's the first part with that transparency. But that that uh, that fear and confusion needs to change to hope and direction. And that's where empowerment and alignment come in. I think one of the things we're seeing coming out of this COVID environment is, is that, you know, speed is the X factor, but it has to be speed done well. Uh, and, and that's where empowerment comes into play. 
play. So most companies, the strategy hasn't really changed dramatically from pre-COVID, but now it's about, you know, okay, some of the distribution models, the supply chain, the way work gets done has changed. So how do we realign our, our colleagues and resources against that? And then how do we empower them so that we can be faster to market, a little bit more nimble? Um, you know, you hear endlessly CEOs saying, you know, we've made more change in the last nine months than we've made in the last nine years. And I, I think that the nimble survive, you know, we'll get into agile here in a moment, but, um, but the trust equation goes back the other way by empowering colleagues. Um, and in a steady state, when everything's good, you know, it's easy to trust one another, but when things are less uncertain and more uh, confusing and ambiguous, it takes a heightened level of, of trust and, and willingness of leadership to empower their colleagues to, uh, to, to augment the strategy. And then course correct. Obviously, you still measure and keep an eye on everything and you course correct as you go. Yeah. And, and look, and I know that's one of the cornerstones of, of agility generally, which is, um, you know, empowering teams uh, to make decisions um, and, you know, have that sort of essentially, you know, delegated authority and, and leadership, uh, you know, and when I'm speaking to clients that I'm seeing in the market who are responding really, really well to the pandemic, um, you know, I, I had a, a CIO speak to me the other day and he was saying that, you know, they've deployed a huge amount of technology into their organisation for remote working and, you know, they just empowered the teams to be able to make the decisions quickly, um, you know, so they could get that technology in, into the hands of their field organisation. And I think, what I'm sort of seeing is organisations are seeing glimmers of, um, you know, these kinds of behaviours and they're looking at how they galvanise, um, you know, those benefits, you know, moving forward beyond COVID. And I think, you know, I am starting to see a shift of, of depending on where people are at, um, people are starting to think beyond the pandemic now in terms of, you know, how do they set their organisations up for success, um, you know, next year even. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And and I do think that that empowerment is is the key. Uh, and again, it's hard to give up control, you know, you as a manager, as a leader, you you take on personal risk because if, you know, if you control, you know, we all like to control things. But we also realize that the scale and the speed has changed. And if you're going to compete um, in a lot of cases, then you're going to have to put more power into the hands of more people. And collectively, you're either going to win or lose. And, and that's a tough thing for, for uh, leaders to face and particularly have to face in a very short period of time due to something like a global pandemic. And look, I know you're a very commercially you know, focused uh, leader. I think one of the first questions you asked me when we interviewed is, you know, can you sell? Um, and I think that's, that's, that's a fair question. Um, I think keeping people focused, um, you know, aligned, um, you know, and really disciplined in terms of, um, you know, how do we continue to drive forward, you know, commercial outcomes when people are in a distributed state, um, you know, people, uh, you know, trying to balance work and, and life, uh, you know, how, what, what's your views in terms of that, that next element in terms of, you know, how do we maintain discipline inside organisations um, in a good way? Right, in terms of sort of making sure we hit the commercial outcomes of the organization. Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess a bit cliche, but the old fail fast is a good one. Um, you know, again, I think companies, you know, first there's there's fear, there's anxiety, there's panic. And then you take a deep breath, you kind of reevaluate what's happening. And then, you know, you, you may change the strategy a bit, um, but you really want to keep that focus kind of, you know, laser pointed, if you will. Um, the discipline comes in around, okay, we may give more people 
more empowerment. We're going to be transparent. We're going to be aligned against our common pursuit. And then we're just going to measure everything. And, and I think one of the things that we found, in fact, you know, we had a town hall call recently where one of our, our top business development guys was talking about all the ways that he's failed during COVID and all these different um, schemes and approaches to the markets that he's tried. And, and a bunch of them didn't work, but lo and behold, in, in failing fast and course correcting, you know, he was able to, to change course and, and, uh, and create some, some success. And I think that, that, that leads into the next facet, which is connectivity, which is to share those stories. Because if you're failing fast on one thing and I'm failing fast on another, there's no reason why each of us needs to fail fast on the thing the other one already failed upon. So I think that that connectivity and that constant communication, it also is, it, it, again, it, it becomes that beacon of hope and, and inspiration. You know, many of us in the knowledge economy, professional services, and, and lots of, of jobs are now operating from the desk at the kitchen table. And, uh, and that, that can be wonderfully productive, but it can also be wonderfully isolating. And so I think creating new channels for connectivity, I know that I've been on more video conferences in the past nine months than I've been on in the last 51 years. Um, and I don't think that's going away, but, but we've got to find whether it's small teams or global town hall calls or whatever it is, we've got to find new ways to stay connected, share uh, successes, share failures, but ultimately, you know, inspire and keep that culture that we always had around the water cooler or the lunchroom or wherever it took place. Now it's just happening virtually. And I think where we're seeing success is companies who figured out how to communicate and stay in constant contact in a, in a virtual world. Yeah. And look, when I speak to, um, you know, I speak to leaders, it's a lot of them are, have got this sort of concept of balance on their minds, which is, you know, how do you strike the right balance between over communicating and under communicating? And, you know, I know everybody geared up for, you know, I would agree with you. I've done more video calls and I come from a tech background. I've done more video calls, you know, in the past uh, few months than I have done in my entire career. And I think it's good in accelerating those new ways of working, but I also think it's about striking a balance and sort of saying, well, not everything has to be a video call you know maybe we can still do some audio calls and you know how do you you know how do you sort of you know find that that happy medium where you know people are still feeling connected <clears throat> but don't feel that they need to be constantly on video calls and they can actually get some work done and and you know i think different organizations are finding the, the right balance in terms of uh in terms of how to deal with some of these new ways of working and, and remote workers do you think a uh, question for you do you think that's going to be a long-term trend in terms of sort of what what sort of are you seeing in terms of people shifting you know their workforces to remote do you think it's going to be a temporary thing um or do you think that we're starting to see structural change in organizations more widely adopting some of these remote working and new ways of working uh concepts you know i, I obviously remote workplace is nothing new i think that um it was institutionalized that you know you got up on monday morning and and got dressed for work and went and sat in traffic and got to the office and went to the Monday morning meeting and, and uh, worked until the whistle blew on Friday afternoon. Um, yeah, I think COVID 
as you say, has probably accelerated the shift into virtual. Uh, and I think that, that, that human beings around the world in every industry are demonstrating that they can be just as productive from home. Uh, I think there's two caveats to that. Number one is that the finance departments and all of the CFOs around the world have also recognized this trend and they've recognized that they can reduce the real estate footprint in many situations to save very significant amounts of money. And so I, I do think that you will see a shift to remote working uh, on a structural basis. That said, there is no substitute for human beings sitting across the table from one another, ideating at a whiteboard or with sticky notes or whatever the method of choice is. Um, there's just more, I like to say, collaboration uh, and perspiration that happens at the team environment when we're in the same room or when we're on the same pitch together. And, and I don't think that virtual and digital has, has gotten us there just yet. So I think it's going to be one of these things where we're not all going to be working from home full time, but I don't think we'll be going into the offices as much as we used to. And I think we're each organization and each culture will have to find their balance to determine how much is in the conference room and how much is at the kitchen table. Yeah, and look, I think you're right. It'll probably end up being a hybrid model, and and I don't think you can ever take away from that sort of human human connection. One of the interesting sort of side, um, you know, benefits that I've seen um, in this uh, sort of huge move to working from home or remote working has been um, the impacts on talent mobility. When I speak to our, our talent acquisition colleagues, um, you know, there's they sort of uh, some interesting um, sort of paradoxes where with borders being predominantly closed, some aspects of, you know, global talent mobility have been reduced, but that's been balanced out by organisations being more willing to take on talent from a different state, for example, um, you know, or even potentially a different country and, and to bring that talent into the organisation remotely. Um, and I think that it'd be interesting to see for me just to observe how the changes in, in talent mobility um, play out over the course of, of the next sort of six to 12 months and whether or not that increases the available talent to, to organisations um, and, and how they sort of, you know, induct and, and bring that talent in and execute people strategies and, you know, all of those things like onboarding, um, you know, an employee value proposition remotely. I think I think it's, it's a really interesting space at the moment. Yeah, I mean, look, I think the models are emerging. Um, you know, now there's kind of this, there's kind of a, a f not fear, but a pandemic based move towards nationalism because all of the borders are closed and nobody's getting on airplanes. But but that will, you know, with a vaccine or, or whatever will happen, that will subside at some point. And I think already in our search work, we're seeing searches that would have mandated that the person needed to be sitting in Singapore and now they could sit in uh, Zurich or somewhere. And so because, because of this virtual based approach, Approach. So again, it's just starting to emerge the the cause and effect of uh, of the COVID phenomenon, but it's certainly accelerating global mobility in, in a much different way. I think you know on the on the on the darker side of that continuum is that 
there's a lot of these jobs that, you know, won't be coming back. And so how are, how are at the country level uh, or the industry level, how are these governing bodies thinking through, okay, what about all these jobs that have been displaced and retrenched through this COVID period? And, and how do we reskill, retool uh, our citizens so that they're more competitive in this new environment? And we're seeing very, different approaches by countries, uh, some more progressive and certainly some faster, but I don't think that's any different than this model that we're talking about uh, for sustainability of an organization. It's the same as the sustainability of a, of a country. So yeah, it's really fascinating to see the whole thing play out. Yeah, it really is. And an area that I'm sort of uh, involved in um, to a certain degree, both personally and professionally, is in the education sector. And, you know, I look at, you know, my my uh, daughter's at university at the moment and she's going through a very different university experience than I did, um, you know, when I, when I was at, at uni and had an on-campus experience. Um, and it's interesting to see how prepared or unprepared the education sector is for delivery of remote education and and also as you said the, p- the part that they're going to need to play um, as some of these roles go away forever um, you know and and we need to retrain and and uh, shift you know parts of our uh, our population to, to different careers and and I think the, the observation I've sort of had is that you know none of this is really a surprise I mean ultimately COVID hasn't fundamentally changed anything it may have just accelerated things you know so a lot of these transitions were going to take place anyway um, but they've just been accelerated by the pandemic um, and uh, yeah it, it will be interesting to see how it plays out but uh, you know the education sector I think needs to um, you know, to uh, really disrupt itself to a certain degree in terms of how it needs to respond um, to the changing needs of of individuals and society. Um, and Absolutely. so, and so, and so, look. Uh, the last aspect of this model is is agility, and I think agility means a lot of things to a lot of different people. It's a uh, it's a buzzword of the of the moment, but it's something that's near and dear to my heart in terms of uh, you know looking at how organisations can you know, both structure themselves and their people for, for maximum agility. Um, you know, what's your point of view on the importance of agility and, and what does it mean to you and and, and how can organisations practically, um, you know, start to implement some of these, these uh, concepts so that they become a more agile organisation? Well, you know, agility kind of trumps everything. And um, what I always tell people with regards to whether it's a recruiting or a retention approach is is hire, find and hire and keep the agile because uh, our, our research would show that their their you know worth is a weird word but you know their contribution is exponentially greater than the average employee and generally the the team with the best talent wins. Uh, and so same with an organization and again, same with a country or a society. So um, the crazy thing about agility and agility, like we would define agility, according to everybody by saying, you know, agility is kind of knowing what to do when you don't know what to do. Um, how uh, comfortable with ambiguity are you? How collaborative and creative are you? Um, how innovative and, and do you have a predisposition for curiosity and continual learning and things of that nature? Interestingly enough, our, again, corn Ferry research would indicate that only 15%, 1.5 of all executives and professionals at any level in any industry, in any geography around the world have the maximum quotient 
of what we call learning agility. And so, uh, again, finding, attracting, recruiting, and retaining those people is a huge factor. And, um, and there's certainly ways, and, and I think it'd be worthwhile to kind of talk about um, the five or six things that, that Corn Ferry would suggest is how to help any of us be as agile as, as we can. It's a bit of a, of a Darwinian kind of philosophy. Is it nature? Is it nurture? You know, it's kind of a little bit of both, but certainly by practicing and building some of these attributes into an organization's uh, esprit de corps and way of life can certainly maximize the, uh, the agility uh, of any organization, but, uh, but yeah, agility is, is, uh, is a fascinating subject. Yeah. And, and so why don't we, why don't we drill into some of those things? So what are the things that you've seen that are practical, um, that, that organizations have implemented or leaders have implemented to, to sort of start the journey on agility or to accelerate their journey? You know, at Corn Ferry, we, you know, we're, we're trying to help individuals, organizations, and society to exceed potential. And um, it's, a weird, it's a weird moniker because how can you exceed potential? Um, our CEO uh, is fond of saying that, you know, you, you don't even know what your potential is unless you're given opportunity. And that's the way that individuals can exceed their potential. And, uh, and actually, you know, it's really, I think it's really good, really clever. So um, number one, it's all about, are we giving people experiences? Are we giving them opportunities? And we talked earlier about, are the opportunities aligned? Are the opportunities measured? Uh, is there a culture of um, tolerance for failure and course correction and things like that. But, but number one is uh, you got to give people key experiences. And it's, if you look back at anybody that you know, who's successful in whatever capacity they're successful in, you generally find that, you know, they've got some kind of a track record of developmental roles and assignments and challenges that sort of uh, made them who they are today. Uh, and you'll find that people who are given more of those opportunities tend to go higher, faster, bigger, better than those that do not. So now, of course, you can't give everybody the, the plum assignments, but can you inculcate and create a culture where people do think through the career experience for each person. And we find that organizations that uh, do have a premeditated strategy around their people and then align that people to the business strategy, they outperform, the, the, the statistic is they outperform by about 25% of any relevant financial metric. So we know that the, the empirically, the companies that spend time on their people and putting them in the right place for the right experience uh, is key. So that's number one. Fantastic. Um, and look, I'm, I'm a big believer in that. I mean, I think, you know, one of, uh, one of the most important principles of, you know, being in a professional services organization is to a certain degree, it's an apprenticed profession. Um, and, uh, you know, as, as a senior leader in the organization, giving, you know, your team opportunities to fail, you know, to grow, um, you know, and, and to have those experiences, um, you know, which are which are huge in terms of sort of you know learning and and to uh, and to really expose them to new clients and and to uh, and to new projects is, you know, I think part of the obligation of of being a leader in a professional service organisation, but it definitely translates beyond that as well. Yeah, no, that's well said. 
you know, the, the second piece to that is, and it's kind of twofold, is does the organization embody a learning culture? So it's one thing to be given experiences. Uh, that's certainly key. But the other is, is that does each individual who works in the organization feel a desire and feel a responsibility for their own continual um, learning and, and uh, you know, a thirst for knowledge and, and innovation and a reinvention. And particularly in this day and age, you know, that old notion that what got us here won't get us there. And so, again, we see companies outperform where there is sort of this, you know, a, a joint obligation around learning agility, a willingness and ability to learn from experiences, you know, do people go the extra mile? Do they take advantage of training and development programs? Is there a culture of mentorship at the organization? Things of that nature. Also to problem solving. Is there a capacity for problem solving? Is there an aptitude for logic and reasoning? Um, and again, you know, it's easy to, to, as you get good at something, it's easy to become complacent. But again, you know, one of my favorite um, baseball, kind of an American thing, but a baseball player is, is Derek Jeter, who played for the New York Yankees and future Hall of Famer. And, and he said, you know, as good as he was, whenever he got into trouble, he went back to the fundamentals and he re-explored how he could do the simple things better. Um, and, and I think that takes the same shape, whether you're an accountant or a marketer or a coder or an engineer or or a professional athlete. So, you know, you've got to continually be looking for new ways, better ways, uh, and reasoning through your approach to basically everything you do. And if, if it's a, if it's a lifetime of continual improvement, you know, chances are you're going to find it. Yeah, and I think that brings into that concept of mastery. And, and one of the things that I know some organizations struggle with as they become more agile, organizations become flatter um, sometimes by the, by that by that through that process. And as organizations flatten out, um, people tend to see less vertical career progression in terms of, you know, title change or sort of moving up the ladder, so to speak. And, you know, when I'm speaking to clients around agility, I'm saying, you know, you need to be tapping into people's intrinsic motivations rather than necessarily their extrinsic motivations and and part of that I think definitely speaks to what you've just said which is you know in a in a highly agile organization mastery and curiosity and and that sort of ability to um, value um, you know problem solving capability um, becomes I guess that um, I guess touchstone of advancement and so the idea of you know an individual master of a profession inside of, you know, reasonably flat organization is probably the future for most, you know, knowledge work, um, I would suggest. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then, and again, I mean, you know, I think in our parents' generation, it was kind of, you know, tenure based and seniority and a, a lot more command and control, generally speaking. Um, and you kind of worked hard and you moved up the corporate ladder and then you had the retirement party and in the state you moved to Florida. Uh, I think those days, as you indicate, are kind of gone. I mean, today it's not really about the linear progression or moving up from a title perspective as much. It's really about a collection of experiences. And I think that that diverse palette and portfolio of life work is what, you know, drives not only success for the organization, but also sort of, uh, 
you know, an enrichment and sort of a, a complete picture for the individual. You know, I, you know, I don't think my friends or colleagues or clients, you know, we don't all talk about, oh, I can't wait to be the CEO, but we do talk about the next chapter in terms of diverse experiences and ways of working and innovations and product development um, that happen a lot more organically and on the ground again than in our parents' generation. So it's really just a shift of the, I don't want to call it the hierarchy, but maybe a bit of the foundation. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think the nature of what a career looks like will, will be dramatically impacted by that, I would suggest. Um, fantastic. And so you said there's a third element as well um, to uh, implementing agility. Yeah. So the last one is really this this notion of, well, there's there's kind of two more, but um, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of sum them up as one. And that is um, how do you look for risk and how do you manage derailers? So again, when you're, when you're going fast and you're trying to be innovative and you're trying to be empowered, um, you know, there is an aptitude to, to make a wrong turn. You know, when you do the same thing the same way forever, you kind of know the path, but you know, when you're, when you're kind of, you know, going along at a high speed and innovating along the way, there is that, that chance. And so again, does the organization have an awareness and do they have sort of uh, a lens towards mitigating potential risk factors? Uh, Again, we like to say, you know, it's having the ability of seeing around the corners. So do you, you know, have an eye towards what the client wants? Do you have a lens towards what the competition is doing? Uh, both the the traditional competitors as well as as maybe new threats from new areas. And, and I think of just having an awareness of that, having an eye on that is something that then helps you to mitigate against those kind of risk factors. And then the final, final piece is really the role of leaders in leadership. So, you know, as leaders, it's our job to kind of take all of this stuff and to provide, again, the frameworks and, and sort of the operating boundaries to get work done. And that's what we call culture. And I think that the best leaders today are finding ways to get the best out of whether it be individuals or teams to get that work done and, and probably to get that work done differently. And again, cliche to say, but if you start with the end in mind, as Stephen Covey taught us, um, and you put the client first, you know, if you work backwards from there, then generally that sets you out on a pretty good course. And uh, I think all of those facets, whether again, it's a culture of learning, whether it's the key experiences, whether it's capacity for problem solving, whether it's an eye towards derailment, all of that is kind of wrapped up with the leadership umbrella. And that's kind of what we're seeing the most successful companies do moving forward. And, and, and the final piece I'd say on that is, is that that's working at the very small company level and the very big company level. And, you know, I'm sure all of us can think of our our favorite, you know, I don't know, Italian restaurant or Indian restaurant or whatever restaurant. And some of them have moved very nimbly and agilely uh, in this COVID environment to create marketing campaigns, to get in touch with customers and bring the food to you and create an app where you can order online and maybe use a shared food delivery service. 
And meanwhile, maybe the other Italian restaurant or Indian restaurant across the street went out of business because they simply couldn't figure out or didn't have the culture to, to drive that innovation and change that was needed at this time. You know, also look at, at the behemoths. You know, uh, I like in, in Australia, I like West Farmers. You know, they're, they're moving the platform both, you know, amongst Targets and Kmarts and companies in the brand of portfolios. Uh, by the same time, they, they continue to build a digital footprint and moving quickly with companies like Flybys and, and changing and, and supplying clients and customers in the ways that clients and customers not only need, but sort of demand to be met today. So this thing's happening at scale, again, from, from mom and pop to the Fortune 100. So uh, I don't think there's any organization on the planet that uh, doesn't have an opportunity or doesn't risk peril by, you know, not paying attention to uh, being agile. Yeah, and look, and I think, um, you know, that's really well said. For me, probably one of the single biggest insights I've had, you know, over the course of my career has been, you know, the importance of, you know, custom empathy and being able to put yourselves in the shoes of your, you know, your clients and and to be able to use that as a, as a place to design new solutions from or, or to potentially meet their needs. And, you know, when I'm speaking to, you know, grads and, and, you know, people who are, you know, up and coming in our profession, you know, I say to them, you know, one of the skills that you can continue to hone over the course of your career is to be able to sort of, you know, put yourselves in the shoes of, of your customer and be empathetic, um, you know, to, to client needs and, you know, customers who are client centric, sorry, pr- companies who are client centric tend to, tend to win. Um, but I could talk to you for hours. This has been an absolutely phenomenal conversation. I'll finish off with a couple of lighthearted questions if you don't mind. Um, and we'll start with just, you know, what's your favorite book or movie, anything that's inspired you along the course of your career? Well, my favorite book is, uh, Ernest Hemingway's The Old Man in the Sea. Um, uh, you know, I mean, I guess you could argue it's a little bit uh, of a struggle of futility, but um, but number one, just the way it's, you know, I'm a marketer by trade and, and I just love uh, stories and I love expression and I love humanity. Um, and, and I think that despite the fact that the old man uh, and, and the fish have this epic battle, uh, which ultimately ends, uh, not great for either one of them, um, but it but it really is. It's about the journey. It's about the the conquest and the adventure. And and I think that you know that is the most important thing to both the old man and the fish in the story. And I just think it's really metaphoric for life and and about going out every day, do something you love, uh, fight till the end, and you know, and uh, it's incredibly well written and, and something I I always ask. If somebody hasn't read it, I said, man, you got to read it. And when you get done with it, I guarantee you, you'll reread it again. It's such a wonderful fable. I love it. Well, I haven't read it. I'm going to have to go out and, and get a copy. I'm, I'm a big Hemingway fan, so I've got to uh, I've got to do that. You're the first person who's mentioned Hemingway on the podcast, so uh, I, I love it. I love it. And do you have a hero or, or somebody who you admire who you would love to invite to dinner, uh, living or dead? Somebody you'd love to uh, break some bread with and maybe have a few glasses of wine and, and chat. Who would you uh, who you'd love to have around for dinner? You know, I go back to where we uh, started, Jamie, which is um, in 2000, 2000 uh, Richard Ferry asked me what I knew about leadership. And, and um, I said, you know, uh, not very much uh, as a young, young guy. 
over the past 20, almost, yeah, almost 20 years, uh, I've come to realize that, you know, it, it really is a fascinating topic. And, um, and most, as I have found, uh, most executives are managers. They're, they're not leaders and the leaders, true leaders are, are few and far between. Um, for me, I, I just think unequivocally Nelson Mandela is just, uh, you know, such a selfless, and uh, such a poignant leader who, you know, basically spent his entire life trying to change a system that, you know, in the beginning, he didn't think, you know, he really stood a chance to do so. And he, and he spent, what, the better part of a third of his life uh, in prison uh, for something that he believed in. Uh, and then, of course, came out and, you know, is now considered the father of a nation and ended apartheid and, and hopefully is, and particularly in these days and age where, you know, things are, are tense and there's still division between us. I think he painted a picture for collaboration, unity, equality, and, um, and something that, that I hold and hold him and his work in high regard. Um, and I can't imagine, you know, I did that on a very, very minor, uh, irrelevant note. I'm about to go back for my second time of two weeks of quarantine inside a hotel room in uh, Singapore where they closed the door and, and come get you 14 days later. Um, Mandela did 27 years on a dirt floor with no Wi-Fi uh, in pretty uninhabitable uh, surroundings. So just having the mental capacity to endure that, not only endure, but to come out stronger and even more steadfast in his beliefs um, that to what led, then led to help him change uh, the course of that country is uh, unbelievable. Right? Yeah, unbelievable. It, it puts things in perspective. I think he's a, a pretty great example of stoicism and, and resiliency. And uh, yeah, um, you know, if, you, if the man can spend that many years in prison, I think two weeks is uh, is a cinch. Um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I invite you to join me. <laughs> no, no. Uh, <laughs> no, negative. I am more than happy uh-huh. not to be traveling at the moment. But mate, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you um, so much for your generosity and, and your insights. Um, I think our, uh, our listeners are really going to find it valuable. So uh, thanks again. I appreciate it. Uh, My pleasure, Jamie. Thanks for spending some time with me. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you are enjoying the podcast, then please tell a friend and rate and review us on iTunes. If you'd like to find out more about me or the podcast, then check out jamiepride.com. Don't forget to subscribe to make sure you get all the latest episodes. Have a great week and please take care of yourself.